our scripture this morning is 1 John 2, verses 1 through 6. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Lord Jesus, I pray this morning um, for each of our hearts, Lord, that you would clear distraction and help us to focus on your word, help us to set our gaze on Jesus and be transformed by your word this morning. Amen. So the first thing I need to do today is actually get something off of my chest. Uh, Last Sunday during the message in what was an off-the-cuff moment, in an attempt at a funny, I attempted said funny at the expense of Phil Hart, who is one of the elders here at uh, Anthem, and I implied, explicitly said, in my comments, that I am the nicer of the elders, and that maybe Phil is maybe the more strict of the elders here at Anthem. And uh, the truth of the matter, the reality is that if it is any way, it's the other way around. I want everyone to absolutely know that I completely and fully trust and respect Phil Hart. He is wonderful. I'm so glad that him and his wife Jenny here at our church. I am so glad that he is an elder here at our church. He does amazing amount of counseling and mentoring and teaching in the life of our church and God absolutely has and is using him. Um, I, I don't believe that this, like known in certain circles as the pulpit, this thing on Sunday mornings where a preacher, pastor gets up and preaches from, I don't think that this time or this space is uh, meant to be used in any shape, form, or fashion to take a jab at anybody. Uh, I don't think it's meant to use it as a time to get a funny laugh at the expense of anyone. Uh, However trivial, however casual, even if it's meant in all good, even if it's meant in fun, even if no, no harm is meant, if it's just in jest, no matter if it's uh, with no harm, uh, at the very least, it's just unfair. Because here is a guy with a microphone speaking, and then the person is out there defenseless. I mean, what are they going to do? So at the very least, it's just rude, and it's unfair. Um, more than that, though, I just don't think that that's what this time is for. This is very precious time. We have 168 hours in one week. And then we don't even use an entire hour for a sermon. And to take any amount of that time, which is dedicated to lift the name of Jesus and to build others up, to ever use it in a way that is in any way disrespectful, I think completely takes away from what this is. So I want you to know that I did call Phil Hart this week. And uh, I spoke with him and I apologized. I apologized to him. And, uh, and he laughed. 
and if you know Phil, I mean, he's just about as gracious as they make him. And he's like, dude, uh, you don't know me in apology. I took no offense to what you said. I actually thought it was funny. And, and that's Phil, praise God. Uh, but I apologize nonetheless because I felt like what I said was just not proper and, and that I should apologize. So I did. Uh, but because what I did, the sin that I committed was in public, I've got to say the, the apology publicly. So I don't think he's in the room right now, but I'm sure he can. Oh, there he is. There he is. So man to man, brother to brother. Great, everybody take his side. <laughs> no, like I, I the, the last thing that any of us should ever do or that I should do as a pastor, as a preacher in the pulpit is even, even casually do anything that it would in any way show disrespect and malign what is a wonderful character. He is an excellent character and to like in any way mischaracterize that is wrong. And so, Phil, I apologize to you and I apologize to my church family for not guarding my words during this very holy and important and reverent time to the degree that I should have. Now, I say that because I needed to say it. And I also say it just in case any of you are under a false impression. I sin greatly and often i am a christian i am a follower of jesus i gave my life to christ almost 33 years ago shocking how old are you rick almost 33 years ago i gave my life to the lord he called me into the ministry he's called me he's appointed me to be a pastor and to serve in this role. I have been ordained. I have been to seminary. I have my master's in divinity. I am a church planter. I love Jesus. I'm a missionary. I love the Bible. I love the gospel. And I sin often and regularly. So if you are here today and you are looking for a church in which the pastor does not sin, I very kindly and gently would suggest to you that maybe perhaps you should go look for that church somewhere else because you will not find that here. Not so long as I'm pastor. I sin, and I absolutely detest it. I hate that I sin. I hate my sin. I hate it in all of its forms, whether it's a verbal gaffe on a Sunday morning, whether it's a premeditated action, whether it is just simply my default mechanism to run to food for comfort instead of running first to Jesus for comfort, or, or whether it is just that really natural, easy tendency for my heart to hold on to hurt and resentment when someone does something to me or to someone that, that I love, the older I get, the more aware I become of just how deeply my sin runs. Like it is all over the place in my thought life, in my emotions, my actions, my speech, in my selfishness, and I hate it, and I grieve over it, and I do mourn it. I, I can honestly tell you I hate my sin. And I fight against it as much as possible, but man, it comes out with ease. 
I mean, I mean, it comes out just quickly and easily as if there are no defenses sometimes. And sometimes it comes out by accident. Sometimes it comes out on purpose. Sometimes I'm fully aware of it. Sometimes I'm not. Sometimes it's completely random. And sometimes it's by habit. I sin. And yet I live in the know. I know that I know that I know that I know that every single one of my sins from my first breath at birth until my final breath at my death has been forgiven by Almighty God. I know that I know that I know that all of my sin has been forgiven and that I have received. And I know this with 100% crystal clear confidence that I have received eternal life. And the reason that I can make such a bold claim with such confidence is because of the verses that we are looking at this morning. So open up your Bible. Let's look at 1 John chapter 2. We're just going to look at the first few verses in 1 John chapter 2. And as you're turning there, let me just set this up. And I said this two weeks ago. Christianity stands apart from every other religion on the planet. Every other religion on the planet shares at least one thing in common. And that is that you can never know if you're in right standing with God. Or whatever it is that that religion happens to call God. You can't know if he likes you or loves you or you're in good standing with him. Every other religion on the planet shares this in common. That you can never know if you're going to heaven or whatever it is that that religion calls heaven. You can never know. What those religions call for is you better work your spiritual fingers to the bone. And hope that you do just enough good to outweigh the bad. In hopes that maybe, just maybe... You're good with the big guy. Or that you're going to the wonderful place up in the clouds. And Christianity stands apart. It stands alone. Because at the heart of the Christian faith is a promise from God in John 3.16. That very famous verse which it simply says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life so salvation the forgiveness of sins and our right standing with God it's not based on our performance it is based on the promise of God if you place your faith your life in the hands of Jesus he promises you're good we're okay everything's all right It is forgiven. It is wiped away. It is not maybe. We'll see. Believe in me. And we'll see if you receive eternal life. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say possibly. And he doesn't say probably. He who believes in Jesus receives eternal life. That is the blessed hope of the Christian gospel of this message that we so like to sing about and hold on to and that we pray about. This is the blessed hope, eternal security and eternal assurance, not because we're good, but because God has made a promise by his grace to save all who turn to him. 
Amen? Amen. So look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So this is written by the Apostle John, and he begins there with a term of endearment. He refers to the audience, even to us today, really. My little children. So he's writing like a, a spiritual father. He's writing like a loving pastor, a shepherd. And by referring to the audience as my little children, he's actually reminding us of who we are. For those of us who are in Christ, he's reminding us of who we are because we're not so much his children as much as we are whose children? God's children. That's who he is writing to. The true identity of a true believer is that they are a child of God, which is not what the world teaches us. So the world has this cliché going out there that everyone on planet earth is a child of God. Everyone on earth is a son of God or a daughter of God, which is just simply not the case. It is not what the Bible says. So in 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, it tells us there, by this, is it, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. So the awful, terrible teaching of the Bible is that we are born into the wrong family. We're born into a bad family with a deadbeat dad, with an abusive, unloving, deadbeat father, the devil. And then here comes God because he actually loves us. He says, I want to rescue you out of that family and adopt you into my family. Folks, is that not like what salvation is? Like we always use the word salvation. Are you saved? God offers salvation. Saved from what? Saved from the devil and from being in his family. Is salvation not being transferred over? Like that is an incredible transformation that God offers to us. By his grace, he makes us into brand new creatures, into a new creation. We're no longer children of darkness. We are now children of God by his grace, by faith in Jesus Christ. In Christ, this is our identity. You are a son of God. You are a daughter of God. And this amazing transformation takes place through a promised transaction. If you have faith in Jesus, you're forgiven of your sin. If you repent of your sin, you are redeemed by God. If you confess your sin to God, he cleanses you of all unrighteousness. If you turn to him, he transforms you. If you believe in Jesus, he causes you to be born again a spiritual rebirth through which we are transformed from creatures of darkness into now children of light. Is that not a spectacular notion? An amazing idea. You're born with Satan as your daddy. And God says, I don't want that for you. I want to be your Abba Father. Let me draw you out of that. And he does this thing by his grace where he comes and invades our life in such a way that he alters our identity from darkness to light. Is that not spectacular? It's an amazing, an amazing thought. And there's nothing that we do to make that happen. There's nothing that we do 
to create that in us. It is an act of God's grace. It is his doing. So I've got four little ones at my house. Edie, Ellie, Emmett, and Eve. And they are my children. Bless their heart. And let me tell you, there is nothing that they did to cause themselves to be born as my children. And they are my children today, not because of their merit or their effort, not because they make straight A's, not because they have creative abilities and are musically talented or athletically proficient, not because they're just so well behaved. I promise. They're my children by birth. There's nothing that they did to do that. Nothing. They're mine by birth. And as my children, I promise you this, no matter what they do, I will never love them more and I will never love them less. They are my children. So it's Mother's Day. So moms, can you love your kids more? Not really. Like, and Brent said this earlier during the prayer time. Like, uh, the, 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 the love of a mother is a pretty spectacular thing that does outshine that of a father. Because you'll see a mom holding this little kid. And this little thing looks like Winston Churchill. So it's like, it's not really even cute. And, uh, and then, <laughs> and it's been crying for 14 straight hours, yelling and screaming. And its diaper is overloaded. And it smells like just pure death. And that mom, it's my little baby, so cute. And the rest of us like, only a mother. Right? But like, that's, that's, that's love. And honestly, as a father, it really is, I won't say to that level, but it's the same. Stag, you just don't love your kids more. You're not going to love them. No matter what they do, they're your kids. They're your children. It's a we who believe in Jesus. We are God's children, not because of anything that we did, but because he caused us to be reborn. He caused the rebirth in such a way that we are now his children by his grace, not by our works, not by what we do. Because Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of worse. God's grace transforms you from a child of the devil into a child of God. The grace of God does that. And I promise you this, that as a child of God, there is nothing that you can do that would cause God to love you more or anything that you would do that would cause God to love you less. Nothing. You may sin. You may backslide. You may become the prodigal. But he will always be the father with open arms. Always. And nothing can remove you from his love. Nothing. Nothing. And that is the promise that God makes to his children. That is the promise that he offers. Eternal life is not based on your performance. It is based upon the promise of God given through his grace. And that is why it is possible. If you are a follower of Jesus, you can say, even though I sin, I'm good with God. 
even though I sin, he's not turning his back on me. Yeah, I'll grieve his heart, and it's not right, and it's not good, and he may take me to the woodshed, but he is still my father. I am still his child. I am forever forgiven, and he will not ever let go. Now, that being said, because we've been forgiven and received eternal life, and because we are a child of God, in no way gives us license to sin. It shouldn't. And that's why John says in that verse, in John 1, 2, 1, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So receiving forgiveness is not permission or freedom to sin. When Jesus, when he healed a person, he would often say to them, go and sin no more. Like, that's the expectation. Like, like becoming a follower of Jesus means actually following Jesus, and Jesus was holy and sinless, so it means following in his footsteps. The calling upon those who say yes to Christ is, say, is saying yes to sanctification, becoming less sinful and more like Jesus. So receiving this gift is not based on performance. It is based on a promise that is by grace. And once we've received it, we should toe the line. We should not sin. But what happens? We do, right? We sin. We fail. Shortcomings, disobedience, rebellion, whether we want to or not, it comes, it just comes out. We fight it, and we should. If you're a follower of Jesus, we fight against that sin. Man, we we pray. God, help me, please, we pray. We set up safeguards, and we get accountability partners, and, and, and we, we set these hedges around us as much as possible to protect us from sinning. But still, what happens? We find ourselves chronically and constantly sinning, and that is why you have got to hold on to what the rest of that verse tells us. Look at it. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. If anyone sins, we have an advocate. You know what that means? If you are a follower of Jesus, you've got a defense attorney in heaven. And ain't no one out lawyering Jesus. He is the great high priest standing before the very throne in heaven, advocating on your behalf, mediating on your behalf, intercessing on your behalf to maintain your righteous standing before God. So when I sin, and I actually sin, and I'm actually guilty of something, I know that I have a defense attorney in heaven who is maintaining, guaranteeing, and ensuring my righteous, innocent standing before God. I'm innocent. Now, how could I possibly say that I'm innocent? I mean, just a little while ago, just a few minutes ago, I, I mentioned a sin from last Sunday. You don't even want to know the rest of them in the last seven days. Like all this constant stuff. So how can I stand here and say that I'm innocent and that Jesus, Jesus is pleading my innocence? It is precisely because of what it says in verse 2. He, Jesus, he is the propitiation of our sins. That word just rolls off the tongue. Propitiation. You know what? Let, let's, 
Everybody say it with me. Come on. One, two, three. Propitiation. It is one of the most beautiful words in the entire Bible. It only happens a couple of times, and by God's grace, no, no one else has commandeered this word yet. We only find it in the Bible, and you only hear it among Christians. It, Jesus is the propitiation of our sins. The word means atoning sacrifice. To atone means to make amends. So, fellas, you got your man cave. You buy your 72-inch 4K TV. It's September, first week of NFL games. I'm dying. I need football, y'all. This is the worst time of the year. College basketball is over. I don't know what to do with myself between now. I, I, please, if you buy a 4K TV, please invite me over. I want to watch games on a good TV. But you, so you do, and it's September, and you invite me over, and you know that I want to watch games on a 4K TV. I come over. And we're not even halfway through the first quarter. I take a baseball bat to your brand-new TV. Oh, we just got Someone's getting rowdy. What are you going to say? <laughs> it's on. It's completely on. And you know what? I can sit there all day and tell you, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And you'll be like, whatever. You got to pay, right? You got to pay. Sin. With this little three-letter word that we throw around constantly, sin is us running around the world with a baseball bat breaking God's stuff. That's what it is. A harsh word that is spoken toward our spouse, a demeaning word toward our child, is running around with a baseball bat breaking God's stuff. Going to work and not putting in a full day's hard job or cheating on our taxes that is taking a baseball bat to God's stuff. Looking at a person with lust, looking at a person with jealousy, maintaining resentment or a grudge towards someone is taking a baseball bat to God's stuff. Sin causes damage. You know, like, like running around grumbling. And, I, and a lot of times I use the examples because it's just what I, it was with me. Sitting around, grumbling, complaining, moaning all day long, that's me. That's me running around with a baseball bat, breaking God's stuff. Because sin just causes damage. Sin hurts my own life. It hurts my own mind. It hurts my own heart. It hurts my family. It hurts the people around me. It hurts other people. They're made in the image of God. God created them, but I'm hurting them. I'm breaking God's stuff. I'm running around with a baseball bat, breaking God's creation. I'm running around with a baseball bat, just causing damage to God's purposes. That's what sin is. And you know what God is saying? Who's going to pay for this? And who in here has the means to pay God back for breaking his stuff. How about this example? So imagine you're driving your car. If you got a souped-up Corolla like me, <laughs> and you're going down a 20-mile-an-hour zone, you know, laid back with my four-inch you know, factory speakers, you know. <laughs> but I grew up in Andrew because you got to lay the seat back a little bit, right? And you got to pump the bass, but there's no bass because it's just Twitters, tweeters in the car. Anyway, so drive, it's a 20-mile-an-hour zone, but I'm going 80. I know I'm speeding. So then I look through the rearview mirror, and what do I see? Popo, flashing blue lights, pulls over. I'm not going to argue. 
I can't argue. I know I'm guilty. Gives me a ticket, and on that ticket is what? A little court date. So i got to show up at court. Show up at court. Go before the judge. Judge looks at me. I can't say anything. I'm, I know I'm guilty. So he says, guilty, speeding. Now, just for the sake of the illustration, imagine that the judge says, here's the fine. Here's the ticket price, $10 million. Uh-oh. Because I tell you, I can sell everything I got, including my children. <laughs> These days, that's actually an awful example, isn't it? That's an awful thing to say. But I'm, you know what I'm saying? I can sell everything. Work three jobs 24-7, 365 days a year for the rest of my life, and I'm not coming anywhere close to paying that off. All of y'all can give me everything that you have, and I'm still not paying that ticket. What am I going to do? You know what's going to happen? I'm going to jail for the rest of my life. But imagine that in that situation, someone walks into the courtroom, smiles at me, gives me a little wink, says, I got it. Plops down $10 million. You know what the judge is going to say then? Free to go. That is what happened on the cross. That is propitiation. God has been loud and clear. The wages of sin is death. All of our sin, any of our sin, deserves the eternal consequence of that is absolute judgment. The eternal consequences for disobeying God is wrath, eternal death, judgment, condemnation, all of it forever and ever. There is a price to be paid for breaking God's stuff, and the price is death. Blood is required. Something has to die. And Jesus says, I got it. On the cross, he's looking at us and he's winking and he's smiling through the tears and through the blood. He's winking at us. I got it. I got it. And he paid the fine. He made amends. He atoned for our sin. He gave his life to pay for our sin in such a way that now we are pardoned. Our legal standing before God goes from guilty sinner to pardon, from being under condemnation to being the righteousness of God, innocent. And that's what it tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Jesus became our sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took our sin that we may be declared righteous. We're not righteous by conduct. We are righteous by God bestowing that title upon us by his grace. He justifies us so that in his eyes we are no longer guilty because the the fine has been satisfied. There's no longer a warrant out for our arrest if we're in Christ. He gave his life to fulfill the promise that it is by faith that we're saved, not by works. And when we place our faith in him, we are transformed from a child of the devil into a child of God. All because he went to the cross to pay the bill. Now, let me tell you why. And I'm, I, I need to make this very clear this morning. I'm speaking very much to the believer. 
what I'm about to say applies only, in pretty much all the scripture really only applies to the believer. You got to believe first before any of it makes sense. But I, I, I want to say that just for the, for the record right now, what I'm about to say. You have got to hold on to the fact that your sin has been atoned for, that Jesus is the propitiation of your sin, because in Revelation 12, it refers to the devil as the accuser. His game is judgment, and his game is condemnation. And you know what he's sitting around doing all day long? He's sitting around barking up at God. God, look at Rick. See what he's doing? You say he's your child? Nah. Look, look at him. Look what he did again. Oh, he repented last week of that one, but he did it again. Like, that's what the devil, that's his MO. That's what he's doing constantly. He's just barking up at God. Rick's just a miserable failure. That is what he does. That's what he does. But no matter what the accuser says, I know that I have a defense attorney in heaven, and his name is Jesus, and he is the righteous, and he maintains my righteous status before God Almighty. It don't matter what the accuser says. What matters is what Jesus says, and Jesus looks at me and says, innocent. And it's not just like on the galactic heavenly realm. Spiritual warfare is a very real thing. So this devil, he's accuser, and he's always trying to breed doubt in us. He's always trying to speak and whisper into our hearts, hey, God, God doesn't love you. How could he? How could God love you? Look at what you did. You say you're a child of God? You're a princess? Really? In God's kingdom? You see how you treated your daughter? That can't be right. Like he's always just nagging away, looking at anything to bring condemnation and guilt and shame upon us. So here's the thing. You should never sin. You should never sin. You should fight it. You should resist it in every way. But you have to know that if you are in Christ, when you do sin, nothing has changed. Know that your sin has been forgiven. Know that God still loves you. When you become aware of any sin in your life, be quick to confess it. Be quick to repent of it. And then just trust God's promise that nothing has changed because he changed you however long ago the moment that you placed your faith in Jesus. You're now his child. Nothing is going to change that. Nothing will change that because it is not based upon your performance, but it's based upon God's promise. God's promise. And it's not just that the devil's like yelling and barking at God. Hey, look, Rick's awful. It's not just that he's somehow whispering into my conscience somehow. Hey, Rick, you're awful. God doesn't love you. He actually commandeers the people around us in such a way to employ them as his agents in this world in order to pile on judgment and condemnation upon us. He uses people. So if you've been in church long, if you grew up in church, you've been in different churches, you've been at Anthelon, you're eventually going to run into that person or those people who are the church police, the church hall monitors, modern-day legalistic Pharisees who just looking, just looking, hey, all right, there's Joey. <laughs> I caught Joey doing something. Hey, Joey, you better get that straight because you're nothing but a hypocrite. There's people who don't, you haven't done anything wrong, buddy. Like, you're good. 
He was texting the church. There are people that think it's their job just to call other people like, hey, you hypocrite. Hey, you hypocrite. Hey, you hypocrite. Hey, well, stop doing that. Stop doing that. No, that's sin. The Bible says that. It's just piling on guilt and heaping it on just constantly. Just constantly. And I'll say this. If a person lovingly comes to you and says, hey, listen, I can't say for sure. Maybe. I think there may be something in your life. I think I saw this or heard this. It looks like it's sin. Can I help you? Can, I, can we walk together through a season in life? Can I somehow like, be used by God in your life to make you more like Jesus and less sinful? Let's get a hold of that. Folks, if that happens, you better welcome it, embrace it, hug it, hug them. That is from the Lord. That is the spirit of the advocate alive in your life. That is the spirit of Christ being alive in the people around you to help you be the child of God that you're supposed to be. But if someone just just coming up, you're just wrong. You're just wrong. You're just bad. You're just sinful. If they're just acting as your judge in your life, like just piling on the guilt and the condemnation and the judgment and not letting go of stuff, that's the spirit of the accuser. That's the spirit of antichrist. That is not of the Lord. The Lord does not breed guilt and shame and judgment. God breeds liberty and freedom and mercy and joy. So if that person comes up, you did wrong, you did this, you did wrong, you did this. Just to keep you in that prison, what I would say is just at least in your heart say, get behind me, Satan. Rebuke it, reject it. For it is not of the Lord. I'm not saying you need to even fight back. These are not things you say to that person. Because you don't engage the fool according to his foolishness. As scripture would say. But in your heart, you just know. Let he who is without sin be the first one to cast the stone. Maybe that person, pray for that person. Because that person needs to understand that maybe they should remove the forest that is in their eyes. Before being worried about the speck that is in someone else's eyes. If there's anyone in the room that is currently guilty of the spirit of the accuser, that the devil is using you in the life of another, just beating somebody down, beating them down, not letting go of sin. The person's confessed, apologized. Maybe they explained it. It was a misunderstanding. But no, you did this. No, you did this. Look at what you did. Folks, the devil is actually using you. Repent. Don't be the spirit of the accuser. Embody the spirit of the advocate. Be Christ in someone that is for the good of building someone up and not tearing them down. I love the book of Romans. And in in chapter 7, the Apostle Paul, who wrote the majority of the books of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul talks about how he battles his personal sin. He says, the good I should do, I don't do. The bad I shouldn't do, I do. And he talks about this war that is just raging and waging inside of him. And he even says in Romans 7, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And it's in the midst of that angst over his sin that he writes and pens one of the most beautiful verses in all the Bible. Romans 8.1, where he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is that not comforting? No judgment. No condemnation. No guilt. 
no shame for anyone who is in Christ. So whether it's your own heart, whether it's someone else chirping around you, or whether it's the devil himself, if you're a believer, don't sin. But when you do, confess it quick. And once you do, learn from it, move on. Nothing has changed between you and God. He's still your father. And when you sin, Jesus is in heaven saying, I got Steve. I got Brent. I got Lisa. I got Amy. They're mine. It's good. Yeah, they shouldn't do it. We'll take them to the woodshed if we need to. But that's in love, and that's in kindness, and that's mercy. Amazing thing. And one of the ways that we know if we've received this gift from God is by evaluating our life. And here's where it gets a little tricky. Because verse 3 says, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Well, Rick, I thought you said it was by promise and not performance. This actually comes up a little bit later in 1 John. So we're going to address this more in depth then. For right now, I, just, I hope that this suffices. Receiving eternal life is not based on our performance. It is based upon God's grace. Obedience to God does not make us a child of God. It is simply a sign that we are. Okay? Those who've received this new identity as a child of God, at the moment of salvation, conversion, the moment of initial faith, at that moment, we begin a lifelong process of learning how to live out the righteousness that has been given to us. And it is progressive. It doesn't happen all at one time. It takes time. Think of children. Like Children instinctively know that they want to be old. Like little kids always want to be older than they are. This is one of the reasons why they play dress up. It's one of the reasons why they imitate their parents. It's one of the reasons why little kids are go to mom's closet or dad's closet and start putting on dad's coat and mom's dress and, you know, in their shoes. And it's all cute and stuff, but they can't take two steps without what happening. It falls off and they walk out of the shoes. Why? It's too big for them. They need to grow into it. That's how it is with us. We are born into God's family. We're these little children, and we're clothed with the righteousness of God, and we're trying to walk in it, and it kind of falls off. We sin. So over time, we grow, we learn, we mature, and then our conduct starts to conform to the righteousness with which we are clothed in. It happens over time, degree by degree, step by step, day by day in a relationship with Jesus Christ himself. So this is the simplicity of the gospel. You and I are a sinner. We fail miserably. None of us fully, completely, wonderfully obey all of God's word or much of it. Because of that, there's a warrant out for our arrest and a bounty on our head. Jesus says, I don't want that for you. I will give my life on a cross and I will die for you. I will pay the price so that you don't have to. And our response is either, no, thank you, I'll just pay the fine myself, which is not a pretty sight. Or say, absolutely, Jesus, I will take you up on that offer. And to do so is to then just enter into this covenant relationship with God where we're now faithful 
followers. And we begin this process of learning to live like a child of God. So we're, every day we learn to hate our sin a little bit more. And when we sin, we're quick to confess it and repent. And, and, but God loves me. Trusting that even when we fail, that we have this advocate in heaven that is making sure, making sure I'm not going anywhere. Advocating, mediating for me. So with that, I ask to each and every person that is listening this morning, what step of faith must you take today? I firmly believe anytime we open up God's word and it is taught that it calls for everyone in the room to take some step of faith. For somebody in here, it's like, you know what? I've never given my life to Jesus. I've never stepped into a relationship with God. I'm, you know what? I'm still in my sin. I don't want that. For you, it's like, Lord, please rescue me from this bad family. I want to be in your family. So is that you today? Maybe you've never done that. You need to just call out to God. I'm a sinner. God, I trust that you love me. Jesus, I give my life to you. I commit. I want to follow you. And God say, come on. Let's hug it out. Come on. Embraces you. For some of us in here, we've been just kind of living in doubt because we're just like letting your performance be determining whether or not you're in right relationship with God or not. When that is not the basis of it, it is God's grace and God's love and His promise. So if you're living in doubt of your eternal assurance, say, God, help me. I'm sorry that I'm doubting your promise and I'm somehow basing it on me. I know better. Help me, Jesus. There's somebody in here right here that's just the spirit of the accuser in someone's life, like just judgment and condemnation and nagging, and you're terrible and you're awful. You need to repent of that. Stop. God, help me to be the voice of the advocate for them. I mean, to not say anything if I can't help them be more like Jesus. I might as well just keep my mouth shut. Or some of you in here are in a situation where someone's just breathing condemnation on you. And you're hurting, and you just need to be reminded you have your advocate in heaven. And no matter what anyone tells you on earth, Jesus got you. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, so much. I always thank you for your word. I thank you so much for this gospel message. I thank you so much, Lord, for the gift of salvation that is by grace through faith. Lord, I pray that these verses would just resonate in us, that it would reverberate in our soul, that we would know that we belong to you and that you belong to us, that we are in covenant together, Lord, not, not because of anything that we've done, but simply because of what you've offered. And I recognize that for some people that is the most difficult thing to understand I understand that for some people that is why they don't accept the gospel because they think that there's got to be a catch or they have to do something. They have to get right first. They have to clean themselves first, Lord. And you say, no, I take you as you are. I'll clean you up. I'll make you better. So, Lord, if there's anyone, Lord, anyone in this room that just needs to embrace Jesus for the first time, I pray that that would happen now. They would call out to you, Lord, just confess and humble themselves and give their heart, their mind, their soul, their body, all of them to you fully and completely. And I pray, Lord, that for those in the room who are believers, 
that we would live in confidence and in assurance that when we mess up, and we shouldn't, and when we mess up, and it should grieve us, and when we mess up and we confess it, to know and smile and rejoice that you are in heaven and that you have a squarely secure in your hands. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.